You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Man, what a beautiful day the Lord has made. This is a day I want to say happy Reformation Eve. Um, some of you may or may not know that about 500 some years ago, there was a fella in Germany, a, a Catholic monk who, when he was reading the scriptures, specifically this one, in Romans 1, 17, he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this gentleman, Martin Luther, in 1500s, early 16th century, understood that to be the wrathful angerness of God in his righteousness, in his holiness. So how can we do this? How can we ever appease a such holy God? And he just made himself just in worry and anxiousness. Uh, that's why they did the whole thing of trying to do and come up with works to appease this God. At some point, and somewhere along the way, Luther got a revelation from the Lord and seeing how it's the righteousness of God is given to us as we believe in Jesus Christ. Once we accept Jesus Christ, he has given us, he sees us as righteous. We're in, put into a right standing. And that gave him such an awe, of such a release of re- and relief of not having to be in such fear and trepidation, but in such worship and adoration and a heart and a desire to obey the Lord. So then on October 31st in 1517, he went and pounded on the, di- on the doors of Wittenberg his 95 theses to bring up to, to argument, to bring up an argument against those in, uh, in the church. And spe- specifically, he wanted to do it with those in academia, with those that were learned and trying to do theology and to debate it. And that's kind of sprung board and leaped us into the, the Protestant Reformation. So when those that are out in the world that are celebrating the holiday tomorrow, I encourage you to remember it as Reformation Day. Those that we stand on the shoulders of those in the past that have brought us into a much better, a much correct way of understanding and how we relate to our Lord. So happy Reformation Eve. I hope you do and have been enjoying our current series on foundations. Uh, We have um, spoken thus far on that God is in control. He is the one who has created all things. He does things in order. Uh, And that the God who created you, every single one of us, as image bearers, he sees you. He knows you. He knows you intimately. Uh, I spoke on the foundations of society, talked about self-control. And then last week, Joe did a, a phenomenal job talking about who are we going to exalt are you going to exalt yourself? Or are you going to exalt the one who created you, the one who sees you? We're going to continue on in our series on foundations. And normally as we go, we'd go from chapter to chapter to chapter, which is great. We're going to skip chapter 5, but I want to briefly touch on it. If you turn to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they are created. And then it goes on going through all the genealogies. 
And what Genesis chapter 5 is showing us is it's narrowing down the family line, pinpointing where the promised seed, what line the promised seed is going to come from. Where is the skull-crushing redeemer seed that was promised to us in Genesis chapter 3? Whose family line will it come from? And we are shown this when we read the other genealogy recorded for us in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 3, we get down to verse 38, and it's a long genealogy, and it traces it all the way back. Jesus, the son of Adam, the son of God. So it's incredible. The, the, the truthfulness, the truthworthiness of our God who keeps his promises, the truthfulness of his word that he's kept uh, for us and he's given to us in order for us to understand who he is, what he's done, what he will do. And so today we are going to fast forward roughly 3,500 years from the end of Genesis 4, skipping all the way through Genesis or Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you're in the ESV and you're counting chapters, it's 153 chapters from there. So there are several reasons we're doing this. Today, as it is, we've mentioned it, it's our family service, the fifth Sunday of the month, a time for us to gather together as a family with our kiddos uh, to worship together and hear from the Lord and hear God's word together. It's also a time to give a break to our Sunday school teachers. So if you have ever in the past served in a Sunday school capacity, could you please stand? And it doesn't have to be here at Westside, it could be anywhere. If you've ever served in a Sunday school capacity. If you are currently serving here at Westside in Sunday school capacity, can you please stand? No, you can still stand. If, you, if, if it's anywhere, if you've served any way in any capacity in Sunday school, I want to thank you so much for the work that you have done. It's incredible. It's amazing. I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. It's absolutely incredible. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the kiddos, as you've seen or may not, if the kiddos don't have one of these special edition Westside Kids Family Service Bulletins, uh, please go in the back. There should be a bucket with them. The only thing that we ask is that you just leave the clipboard behind. You can take the, the crayons with you and your bulletin, uh, but if you could just leave the, the clipboard behind, that would be fantastic. So today I want to talk about some of our foundation elements of our faith an attempt to demonstrate what our foundational response must be as believers. And I want to take a look at God's word in order for us to better understand who our God is. Who is the God that brought everything into existence by just speaking it? Who is the God that spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden? Who is the God that's been revealed to us in the scripture? And then for us to understand and result of knowing who God is, what is our response? Specifically as it relates to responding to what God has told us, what he desires of us. That those that he created in his image, that means every single one of us. What does he require of us? I hope that to explain that God desires from us is a love for him a love that comes from our whole being, which in turn yields or produces our complete and utter obedience to him. The title being, Love is Obedience. More precisely, love is demonstrated by our obedience. So it's a five-point sermon. Hope everyone has their, their five fingers with them today. Fear the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. 
keep his commandments, love the Lord, and serve the God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Is anyone familiar with what this sign is? It's American Sign Language sign for love. We are to bind the word of the Lord on our hands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love the Lord and love your neighbor as yourself. So this will be a constant reminder with you as you walk and go about your days to think about this and to think about what has been recorded for us in Scripture, specifically as we look at the book of Deuteronomy. When you think of the book of Deuteronomy, what's the first things that come to your mind? The law, the wrath and sovereignty of God. Is it the dark cloud on top of Mount Sinai that's raining down judgment and just laws for us to follow? Or is it love? Is love one of the things that you think about with regards to Deuteronomy? The book of Deuteronomy, whose title in Hebrew comes from the very first verse in chapter 1. These are the words. These are the words of the covenant that was renewed between God and his people, which were originally made at the base of Mount Sinai after they had gotten out of Egypt. And you can read about this in Exodus 19, and I would encourage you to read that narrative. Again, I refrain from using the word story because it's a historical event that actually took place. So Exodus 19, read the historical account of what took place. In Deuteronomy, these are the words that Moses spoke to the people as they're just about to enter the promised land. After a very unfortunate and significant delay, a 40-year delay due to the fact that the people's heart and their disobedience, their heart was stuck in Egypt. So God gave them a 40-year delay for a trip that should have really only taken 11 days to complete. Deuteronomy is a call for the people of God to love him, demonstrated through their obedience to his words. So I know we've got a bunch of kids from our Sunday school in here with us. Kids, you have learned the five first books of scripture. Can you recall with me what they were or are? Genesis. Deuteronomy. Awesome. Well done. Deuteronomy. It's found within the first five books, the Pentateuch. That's all that means. The Pentateuch are formerly known as Torah with a capital T. Deuteronomy is very significant, just like all other books of scripture are. But especially as we see that Jesus Christ used these words of Deuteronomy more in his ministry here on earth. All three of his temptations, he used these words. So we should be aware of these words and know them and understand then who it is that has spoken these. Who is like God? Who is God? Who is like Yahweh? Exodus 15 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. This is the song that the people of Israel sang. It's traditionally called the Song of Moses because they sang this after seeing the most amazing, utter display of power from Yahweh against the Egyptians. You see, the Red Sea had collapsed on top of the Egyptian army after God's people, a very large number of people, crossed on the dry bottom of the sea where the words tell us that they would walk in those wall of water on their right hand and on their left hand. 
and they walked on the other side. As soon as everyone crossed the other side, the, wa the walls of water collapsed on the Egyptian army, and they sung this song. I'm not going to sing it for you. <laughs> but they sung this song. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. In this great event, the great Exodus event, when the Lord's people had left Egypt after the ten plagues. You see, God used ten plagues. They're powerful, awesome displays of his power, not to directly correspond with one Egyptian deity for each day. You see, God went above and beyond those deities that were in Egypt. They were being worshipped by the Egyptians. We are told this because in the point, this is one of the purposes of the Exodus, is to strike the gods, plural, of Egypt. Exodus 12, 12 says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So again, the question we want to have and try to answer before us is, who is this God? Who is the Lord? There are six very important words that every Jew would have learned and known even before they would have been able to speak. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. These would have been the same words that Jesus would have spoken as a child, from evening to morning, twice every day. These words are part of what we call as the Shema. Shema, to hear or to obey or obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Let's read it together. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You should talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. It's a common phrase the people of Israel would have heard, because captured in these words is several instances of this phrase, and it is all pointing to obedience. The giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, verse 1 says, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. You shall obey. Prior to crossing the Jordan River, in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Go, hear, listen, and obey. God is telling the people not to be afraid of the enemies that they are going to attack. Deuteronomy 20, verse 3 says, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. Again, another instance in the case in which they are to hear these words and to obey them is when they read the, the curses and the blessings in Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal in, verse, in chapter 27. It says, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel. When our Lord speaks, we are to listen 
but listen in a manner that results in a life lived in complete, utter obedience to him. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. These are the words that I command today shall be on your heart. From this passage, we learn about who the Lord is because he has given his personal name to us, Yahweh. When you see the Lord, which is in capital, small capital letters in most of your translations, L-O-R-D, that is revealing to us the personal name of God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. Verse, verse 4 could really be rendered a little bit differently. Obey Israel, Yahweh. Yahweh is God, is unique. Our God is unique. This is an absolute truth declaration that's being made before the Lord's chosen people, before they entered the promised land, promised to them by the covenant-keeping God. Recall that Israel is heading into the land God had promised to Abraham, and in this land there are going to be many people groups that are, going to be, that are worshiping a pantheon, meaning a multitude of small g gods. And as these people were going in to take the land, God gives them this command and revelation that he alone is God. And they, the people of Israel, were not to have any other gods before him because that is the very first commandment. They're called to worship him alone. Again, revealed as a personal God, Yahweh, as he is the only true God, the only unique one. That is what is meant by God is one. God is unique. There is only one God revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. God alone is the one true God, and there is no one like him. We sang about that song. It's coming from Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there's no other besides me. There is no God. I equipped you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. There is nothing like our God. Revealed to us by his own words, captured for us in scripture as he has breathed them out, he has absolutely no need for anything. God necessarily exists. He exists in a far supreme manner. He is so much stronger, far more excellent, beyond anything we could ever imagine. God is qualitatively different than us in every way. There is no limitation in him or imperfection in him. There is no shadow of change in him. Every character trait, every attribute of God is in perfection and complete unity. God is one. God alone is unique. He exists. That one, he just... I, blows my mind. He exists. He is the great I am. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, God told Moses his name. I am who I am. So it's a, it's a unique phrasing that we have captured in the English, but it's the idea is that he alone is eternal. He alone is the one who is present. He is called the Ancient of Days the one who was and is and is to come. He is 
holy, meaning that he is so completely set apart from us, holy and completely other. But yet, despite his holiness, he is absolutely personal. Scripture is recording for us his interactions with his creation, with us as his image bearers, done through relationships. He speaks to us. We can pray to him, and we interact with him as we've been doing this morning, as we worship him. And so knowing who God is should cause us to fear him, not in the sense that Martin Luther had prior to his revelation, but in the sense of uneasiness, in a sense of being afraid, but in a sense of respect, in in all-consuming awe of who he is. We need to change that definition, understanding of fearing the Lord. Understand fear of affectionate reverence. For For the psalmist says in chapter 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, meaning the one who is completely holy, who cannot stand sin at all. Who could stand? That's where Luther had his mind. That's where he was at. Who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. And through knowingness, that there is forgiveness of our sins, that he has cast them as far as the east is from the west. We should fear him and rejoice in that knowledge. But friend, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to receive that forgiveness and stand in a place of awe and reverence, if you have not accepted Christ, you're standing in a place in which there is anxiousness, there is fear, There's dread. There's an uneasiness in your conscience that can only be relieved through the blood of Jesus Christ who can give you a pure and clarified conscience to understand him in awestruck reverence and awe. And today you can be set free from that fear, from that dread of just understanding of who he is, that he came to die in your place, satisfying the penalty of sin that we had against God, and which we so rightfully do is death on our end. But Jesus Christ came in and stepped in and did that in our behalf. Thus allowing us affectionate reverence and awe and joy of who our God is. When we begin to know who God is, learning about his character will necessitate our obedience to his word. That's just the next logical response to what we are called to do, to obey him to love Yahweh, your God. Because if we just stand in some sort of mental assent to the fact that God exists, oh yeah, he's, he's out there, will not ultimately save your soul. I mean, James, Jesus' brother, tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. Once we know who God is and accepted him as our Lord and Savior, we must follow him. We must follow up on that belief with a desire and a resolve to obey him with everything that's within us. That is what it means to fear him. The foundational elements of our faith, fearing the Lord. The following command is based upon this previous statement that Yahweh is our God, that God is unique, that we are to love him. Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all 
your might. To love him with an all-encompassing love, which finds its expression, again, in joyful obedience. And to obey him and do that, again, demonstrating that continually, day in and day out, by your obedience to his word. Recognizing God as one and then obeying what he asks of us. And he's asked us to do this in every aspect of our life. Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9 says, And you shall teach them, your children, diligently teach your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Every aspect of our life should be filled and flowing with our love and obedience to our Lord. This is made quite clear when the Ten Commandments were given. You see, the Ten Commandments were given to us, his image bearers, as a way to be able to interact with a great and holy God and how we can interact with one another through, again, demonstrating our love and obedience to him. He will, in turn, display his chesed towards us, his chesed, his steadfast, faithful love. The words of Deuteronomy 5.10 says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, not out of a sense of dutiful obligation, but out of a sincere heart. Again, in the Old Testament, the heart, the soul, and the strength, all those things are, the heart is understood from the Old Testament context as the seat of intellect. The soul is all the invisible parts, and the strength is the physical side. It's not trying to differentiate all three different aspects. But what it's trying to say, it's summing it up. Every part of us, we are to love our God with every essence, bit of our essence and being, we are to love him. So with that as a backdrop, let's scroll, flip, click over to Mark chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And as you're scrolling, flipping, turning your pages, the reason why we go over these Old Testament passages, because they are the foundational elements of what the the New Testament is pointing back towards. And if we don't have a quite understanding of what's being said and shared, we're going to miss out on what is actually being shared with us. We lose out on that focus. So these words here, are being approached to Jesus in our passage here. So this is Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 and following. And what it says is that the, uh, and one of the scribes came up in hearing after disputing with one another. Well, the one another are because Jesus was talking with the Sadducees, and it's a bad, awful, bad joke, but the reason why they're called Sadducees is they're sad, you see because they have no understanding. They cannot accept the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead. So the previous passage in context, Jesus is talking with them and explaining to them, no, there is a resurrection. And so hopefully they will be happy, you seeds. I don't know, that's, sorry. I know, that's bad. And so so one of the scribes, One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked them a question. Now, mind you, the the scribes, these are the ones that would have understood Torah. 
They would have taught it. They would have written commentaries on it. They were so well-versed in the law. And the scribe comes and asks our Messiah, which commandment is the most important of all? Out of all the 613 commandments found in Torah, which one is the greatest? Out of the 365 things we should not do and the 248 things we should do, which of these commandments supersedes everything that's incumbent upon humanity to obey? Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. Everyone that is an image bearer, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers in verse 29. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Notice a couple of things to note here. The Lord our God. This is the covenant-keeping personal God who, out of love, initiated the means to have a relationship with him despite the fact that we are sinners. This is our God. Verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and all your strength. Notice that small word that's translated into English, the word with. To understand its meaning, it probably could be better rendered as from. We are to love our God in an undivided manner, from all of our heart, from all of our soul, from all of our mind, and from all of our strength. And if we don't start there, if we attempt then to move on to the second one that Jesus talks about, without the love of God, we will just end up being legalists. That's the reason I believe that Jesus says this next. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. This is taken from Leviticus 19.18. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. When Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment is the Shema, it is meant by two ways. It contains, first, it contains the essence of the entire covenant and the requirement established by God. It sums up the Ten Commandments, especially the first one, you shall not have any other gods before me, establishing the exclusiveness of worship that only belongs to Yahweh. These great, greatest commandments sum up the two halves of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. The first half deal with our relationship to God on the vertical plane, in which we honor God. We worship Him only. We honor His name and honor His day. The second half, you should love your neighbor as yourself, deal with the relationship on the horizontal plane, the second half of the Ten Commandments. Honor your parents. Do not kill an image bearer. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie and do not covet. That is why they are called the greatest commandments. They are a summation of all. We notice here in verse 32, and the scribe said to Jesus, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all heart and with all understanding and with all strength, and to love one neighbors as oneself, as much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. He was a good Jewish scribe. Notice that he does not mention the personal name of God in his response. 
He just mentions him or he. Because as a Jew, they would not even use the name of the Lord. They considered it so holy and so precious. They would not even mention the name. Verse 33, Jesus responds back to to the scribe. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So close. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So how do we obey God? How do we do this? By How do we fear him? Why are we to fear him? Because again, he alone is God. He is the only one that should and must be obeyed. And again, we fear him out of complete reverence for him that impacts every single aspect of our lives. The fear of the Lord is to have the uttermost awe for who he is. Is it so that any time and every, every opportunity that we have to interact with one another, we should be proclaiming his name. We should be proclaiming his love, using everything that's around us to be able to point others to Jesus no matter where we are. That is meant to love him with all of our mind, soul, strength. It's encompassing everything that every aspect of us is just flowing out to talk about him, to share with him. It's so prevalent in our culture today that we hear people use the Lord's name in vain just to profane it, to make it common. Now, one of the things we could do is show the world around us that something of the glory, something of the might, the awesomeness, the judgment and the love of God, when we, when we speak of the name of our Lord, it would demonstrate to the world that we know him, that we fear him, and we love him. We fear God by living in unity with one another, wanting the best for one another that's around us, laying our lives down for the sake of others, laying our preferences down for one another, to encourage one another, to use the gifts that God has each blessed you with in order to glorify him and strengthen Westside. These words out of Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13 says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but the fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul, and keep his commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today. This is what the Lord God is asking us. So as you walk and go through your day, remember this. Remember the love. The love of the Lord your God. Fear him in awestruck wonder. To walk in his ways. To love and serve him. All of these are all encapsulated in the greatest commandments. To love and serve him. All of these are verbs. All of these are actions. They're things that we are to do. Love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So bind them on your hand. Keep them with you. Recall these and have it flow out of you out of a deep appreciation of the awestruck wonder of our God. Amen?